In her novel, Flying Jenny, author Thiesa Tui tells the story of barnstorming pilots who thrilled the public with their daring feats in cities large and small in the 1920s. Hi, I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape. Flying Jenny follows fictional character Jenny Flynn. She's a 17-year-old pilot who's based on real-life pilot Eleanor Smith. While not as well-known as Amelia Earhart is today, Smith did an amazing thing in October of 1928. She flew her plane under New York City's four East River bridges. Joining me now to talk more about that story and her novel, Flying Jenny, is author and longtime journalist Thiesa Tui. Thiesa, thanks so much for coming in. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, and this is the second time we've had a chat. It is. The Five O'Clock Follies was the earlier book that you were here to talk about. Right. Several years ago, yes. So what's the premise of this latest book, Flying Jenny? I don't know exactly how to explain it. Uh, my The main idea, the main reason I started the whole thing was to show it's set in 1929, uh, to show that women were doing interesting and fun things uh, a long time ago. One of the women, uh, they're sort of antagonistic towards each other. One's a tabloid news reporter, and the other one's a debutante um, stunt pilot. So, Laura sp- Bailey is the reporter, and Jenny Flynn is the pilot. Is the pilot, right. And Laura Bailey uh, had a very hard scrabble life. She grew up in in um, in Bohemian Greenwich Village uh, in the teens, and doesn't even know who her father was. Her mother was um, just very, very, very Bohemian, and her mother hung out with all these famous writers and poets. Um, I did a tremendous amount of research about the literary life in Greenwich Village in the 20s. What was that life like in the 20s? It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating. At one point, John Sloan, the painter, and Marcel Duchamp took over uh, the arch in Greenwich Village at the end of Fifth Avenue and declared Greenwich Village a free republic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, just all kinds of crazy people walking around, and from a researcher's standpoint, it was it was really a mine to uh, to be able to throw in a lot of these people. Since I gave Laura, I mean, all of them are fiction. I gave Laura's mother um, just a kind of a wild, independent life. They lived in an apartment that actually my sister-in-law lived in on Gay Street mm. at one point. I lived in the village when I first came to New York. I, I still remembered at the where, where the library is now. The Jefferson, the the Jefferson, Jefferson Market, Market Library. The Jefferson Market Library at one point was a courthouse. It was a courthouse in 1929 when, when Laura lived there, when my character Laura lived there. But I still remember uh, here when the women's house of detention was on the was on the the market 
grounds there, and you'd walk past, and the women were hanging out the top window screaming obscenities. <laughs> so I was able to use, you know, things like that. As I said, the description of my sister-in-law's house on Gay Street, or a, a pint, tiny, tiny apartment. This was my sister-in-law long before she married my brother, when she was a bit bohemian herself. And the and it it was just so fun to to do the research for that, to find out the Sixth Avenue L was there. Um, John Sloan painted pictures of the Sixth Avenue L. I just had a lot of fun with the uh, with the research on the village. That's why when the book came out, I was able to have my launch party at the Jefferson Market Library. Oh, how great! The, the librarian there was like, oh, my gosh. I I told him my character had a nightmare that she was flying a New York taxi into the clock tower of the library building. She went to PS41 across the street. She was born at St. Vincent's Hospital, which is we all know is now gone, mm-hmm. but it was certainly there at that time. And she grew up, you know, five blocks from the library, so... Uh, it was it was very her life was very Greenwich Village centric. The other character, the stunt pilot, and and this is sort of part of the book or part of the story. The other character had absolutely the opposite kind of life. Even though she was doing something like being a stunt pilot, she was a very conventional person basically very conventional. So she had just this little oddball tick of wanting to fly, but otherwise she was a banker's daughter from the Southwest. She, you know, had a coming out party. These two women just did not understand each other at all. They were from two such very different worlds. Part of your book is set in Oklahoma during a period when oil riches flowed to Native Americans. Why was it important for you to include that history in this well, book? Well, uh, you know, that was almost an accident in the sense that I'm one of those sort of weird writers that doesn't really know exactly where I'm going. So after the Powder Puff per- Derby, that was the reason I set 1929, that was the first year that women were allowed into the cross-country air races. And the pilot stole a plane in Kansas and then ended up flying to Oklahoma. And once I got the two of them, and of course the reporter is chasing to get the story, they landed up in Ponca City, Oklahoma. So I started researching Ponca City, Oklahoma. I mean, I asked Mr. Google what he knew about Ponca City, Oklahoma, and I found all sorts of utterly fascinating things, including this business of what they called the Reign of Terror, when at one point in, I guess for quite a stretch of time there in the 20s, the Osage Indians were the richest per capita people in the entire world. The tribe had been, when when they discovered oil on their land, the government sort of closed the tribal roles and there were only 2,000-something Osage Indians on the roll. And 
they just they were just sitting on pots and pots and pots of oil and those stories were all fascinating first of all there was just a, a very corrupt situation that <clears throat> grew up around that there were minders for the Indians. The Indians were not directly given the money. They had to get the money through the government, through a minder, through a lawyer. And, and it turned out that a lot of Osage women started mysteriously dying. Hmm. Um, and apparently at least 24, that's the minimum, were killed by their own relatives, white men that had married the Osage women for their money. It's it's a fascinating story. So Laura and I, both being reporters, once we landed up in Ponca City and, and accidentally fell onto uh, all this um, amazing information, couldn't help but throw it into the book. Yeah, you yourself worked as a reporter for many years. Many you worked years. for five daily newspapers right. and the Associated Press. And the Associated Press. How much does that experience come into play when you're researching? I would imagine it helps a great deal to have that background as a journalist. Oh, yeah. I mean, in fact, I keep saying I don't even consider myself really a fiction writer. I just kind of am having a great deal of fun for the first time making things up. For me, I, I do the research. I see the scene in the same way a reporter would go out and cover something, and then I write it up. But the fun is I'm sticking fictional characters in there, and then I can just have them do or say whatever <laughs> I want them to. So when you create a character like Laura Bailey, who is a journalist, how much of Laura Bailey is Thea Satui? Well, yes and no. Um, Laura Bailey was working for a tabloid when there were at least 13 daily newspapers in New York. Wow, times have changed. Huh? Yes, times have really changed. I know what reporters do. I know how they work. I know how they operate, even though one of my favorite scenes is when Laura has to commandeer a public telephone so she can get her story across. So she bribes a she bribes the kids standing on the street to hold the telephone booth for. Nobody goes through that sort of thing anymore with the way technology is. And, and certainly, I, I never commandeered a telephone booth that way. But you understand, and that's, this is exactly my, my first book, um, Five O'Clock Follies. It's the same thing. I was actually not a correspondent in Vietnam. No one could understand how I conceivably could have written something so realistic, but I was in journalism a very long time. I know how they work, how they think, what the ethos is, if if you will. So um, that was very important about Laura. And for F Jenny Flynn, my mother was an old-time pilot. She had a pilot's license in the late 1920s. How groundbreaking was that for a woman like that during that time to be flying like your mom? Well, it just, I don't know if you'd use the word groundbreaking. It's just sort of no one else was doing it. So I guess it's groundbreaking. I mean, she didn't think she was breaking any ground. She was just having a good time. She, at the time that the Powder Perf Derby, the Powder Perf Derby, as I said, was in August 1929, 
the women flew from flew from California to Cleveland, and it took them. I think it was seven days it took them. Um, at the end of that derby, Amelia Earhart and the woman who had won the derby, uh, Louise Thadden, decided to start an organization of women pilots. And that organization exists today. It's called the 99s. The reason it has that name is that Amelia Earhart sent out a letter to every woman in the United States who had a pilot's license. And that number, I've heard, sort of varies. It was probably 116 women, maybe 126 women, but right, you know, just over 100 women had a pilot's license. And Amelia Earhart sent out a letter to every single one of them to ask to ask them to join her efforts to start up this this women's group. Uh, my mother received one of those letters and didn't bother to answer <laughs> it, but there were ninety nine women who responded, so we know exactly how many women had pilot's license in nineteen twenty nine it was about 116 or 120 women had license, and 99 of those women were serious enough about their flying to respond to that letter and join that organization. That said, both Jenny and Laura are women working to achieve success in a man's world in 1929. Right, and just sort of from a fictional standpoint that was one of the problems i had with the with the book was laura was very aggressive and knew that she really wanted to have a real life instead of the kind of bohemian life that she grown up with so she was she was very aggressive about that the pilot character was only doing it for fun and sort of that was a problem with a fictional character. They have to have some drive and some. So that's where I, how I worked out the antagonism, the antagonism between the two of them was Laura felt Jenny was just a wastrel because she had this talent and she was doing this very special thing and didn't want to work hard at it. Laura becomes fascinated with Jenny when Jenny flies her plane under the East River Bridges in New (laughs) York City. Yeah, yeah. Well, that actually happened. Um, That's the opening scene in the book. The 17-year-old who did that was named Eleanor Smith, and she was the only person at that time who had ever successfully for, flown under all four East River Bridges, and no one has ever done it since. It's an amazing accomplishment if you get out there, as I did. I I took a riverboat cruise to just see what it was like looking up at the undercarriage of the four bridges. Those bridges are low. They're low. <laughs> they're I mean they're at some point at some points, especially, you know, depending on the tides, at some point there's not more than uh 200 feet clearance between the water and the bridges. And this adorable, wonderful, my favorite <laughs> my favorite real person, Eleanor Smith 
was a very well-known young woman at that time. She flew out of Roosevelt Field, um, had a crush on Lindbergh from a distance, of course. He had... The 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 year before my book takes place, Lindbergh had had flown the Atlantic and had left from Roosevelt Field. So Roosevelt Field is is very big in the book because on Long Island, yeah. Well, look, Roosevelt Field isn't. It didn't always be. A, it wasn't always a Macy's. <laughs> so it's it's you know it's a shopping center now, but. But it was a very, very famous airfield. I mean, very important um, in American history, not just in American aviation history, but just simply in American history because so many important things, so much in terms of uh, the development of flying in this country um, came from Roosevelt Field. And the stuff that the stuff the pilots were doing in 1928 1929 1930 is just you can't believe it i mean they were doing all these things of trying to find out you know how to fly blind how to how high you could go and they had made up oxygen tanks fixed up with uh uh there was one woman that you know that had some kind of a mask that she'd gotten from a hospital, carrying an oxygen tank on the plane with her. It was fascinating. It was just totally fascinating. I mean, we seem to know all about uh, the cowboys and how the West was won and all that sort of thing, but you know the the fascination that people had at the time. I mean, the research I did, you just, the the newspapers were just filled with it just every day. The Daily News had their own airplane so they could just fly fly around at Roosevelt Field and, and get all these fascinating stories. So when Eleanor Smith flew under the four East River bridges, did people know that was going to happen? No, no it was... It, I think uh, it was a. I think it was a reporter from the Daily News that ribbed her into doing it. She had. She was a kid. She was seventeen years old, um, and had gotten her her pilot's license when she was sixteen, and had obviously developed her skill to some great extent in in that one year. But um, another guy, uh, a show off type of. Uh, fellow that hung out at Roosevelt Field tried to do the stunt and crashed. And I think several other people had tried to do it too. So right after he crashed... Crashed in the East River? Yeah, in the East River. Well, I mean, you know, those planes were so light. This Mm -hmm. is what... The planes were made out of wood, out of balsa wood. So, I mean, the wings and everything. So... They crashed all the time, and you know it, somehow there wasn't much to it. Mm. And especially as you were pointing out that the, <laughs> the he wasn't that very far off the water. Clearly, yeah, when, right. He was pretty low when he when he crashed. So uh, you know, a bunch of these uh, uh, hangar jockeys w- were hanging out at Roosevelt Field and and razzing this guy because he had 
tried this stunt and you know, and somebody said, "Oh, even a girl could do it." Uh-huh. And this is how she landed up doing it. It was like just they ribbed her into doing it, and she was didn't have the good sense to sort of know how. You know, she was going to like, okay, show them she could do it, and she did. What were the yeah. headlines after she did that? Do you remember? Well, this is interesting in terms of the research. Um, I think, I suspect, in fact, I discussed this with the New York Post reporter, um, I suspect that the only New York newspaper that had it, because the stories I saw, like in the the Times story that I found doing research, suggested to me that the Times reporter hadn't been there. Hmm. But there were all sorts of there were newsreels. There's a a daily news photograph of her of the plane actually flying under one bridge, um, and the daily news had the story. But the reporter from the Post said, uh, who did quite a big story about Eleanor Smith when after my book came out. I mean, most people don't know her name, and the Post did a story about her. Uh, the Daily News ran an op-ed page op-ed piece that I wrote that Eleanor Smith was a much better, much better pilot than Amelia Earhart. And who's ever heard of Eleanor Smith? Why do you think her name has been lost to history that way? People afraid of copycats? Um, <laughs> you know, first of all, she made herself famous by getting lost, Amelia Earhart. Secondly, Amelia Earhart was married to a marketing man. So there you go. I mean, in those days as in <laughs> in our present time, marketing is is what seems to make everything run. Seems to, you know, you need marketing to get well known and it's 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 just a shame, but at the same time, I mean, the the newspapers were full of Eleanor Smith's stuff. I mm-hmm. mean, she because she was she was constantly, um, you know, she set I think two. She set set an altitude record and a altitude and speed. I guess in nineteen twenty eight or twenty nine. So she was doing all these amazing things. While Amelia Earhart was going around on on what a lot of people referred to as as the chicken lunch circuit, mm. you know, uh, giving talks, George Putnam, the of the publishing house, got the idea that he wanted a book about after Lindbergh flew the Atlantic. Putnam went looking for a lady Lindy. And Amelia Earhart, had, at that point, I think maybe had had a couple of flying lessons. So, I mean, he, she was a creation. Now, in, in the research that I did, I, I found that the other pilots would really never say anything bad about her because apparently she was a really nice person. But um, her husband, um, and he, and then he eventually ended up marrying her. He he became so enamored with this sort of Pygmalion creation, and he 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 
went out of his way, and that's what my daily news op-ed piece was about. He went out of his way to keep Eleanor Smith from getting jobs. And she was stopped from quite a number, getting quite a number of jobs, but nonetheless, she was voted uh, the best female, female pilot in the country. Uh, and I think it was 1929. Did she face charges for flying under the East River Bridges? <laughs> That's a funny story. Her father uh, was a fa- apparently a kind of a well-known comedian or vaudevillian, something like that. He knew, I think the mayor at that time was Jimmy Walker. So they set an appointment, and she was terrified, She just thought she was going to lose this wonderful license that she had worked so hard to get. So she, her her father set her up with an appointment with with the mayor, and she went in to see the mayor. And what strings the mayor pulled with the commerce department because that's where you got your license license at that time. Uh, One will never exactly know, but um, the mayor called her in and uh, chatted with her and. I told her she'd done a bad thing, and I don't know, he fined her 50 cents, Some the different <laughs> stories exactly about what happened there. But anyway, that's how she didn't lose her license. But um, the some of Eleanor Smith's story is My Jenny. Um, my Jenny is the one that flew under yeah. the bridges, and um, and Jenny worried about losing her license, and so I cooked it up that... Um, Someone at someone that worked for Curtis, the the airplane manufacturer. Someone that worked for Curtis got got Jenny off. But um, it's just so much fun to. It's just so much fun. See, I'm just getting excited. Yeah, talking I see it about in your face. Research. Yeah, you're lighting up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, just you, you find these stories. Go online, go to the library. You know, I Amazon loves me. I'm <laughs> always ordering all these old books and marking them up. The stuff you find is just so much fun. Something not fun, the stock market crash. Is that reflected in this book? Oh, uh, you're getting to the end of the book. <laughs> That's where you leave us. That's on the last page. That's on the last page. Um, but... But the upbeat thing about that is that Laura, who's so serious about being a reporter, man, she's got a big story now. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. She's got a big story. So and will you continue with her following that story in another novel? No, I'm actually I'm writing a mystery series set in Paris now. American expats in Paris. Um, I have several American friends that live in Paris, so... Um, I know their milieu a little bit, and uh, I, uh, this this necklace that I'm wearing is a Mesopotamian signature seal, a replica of a Mesopotamian si- signature seal that I got at the Metropolitan Museum in New York, and it's a clue in uh, in my first mystery about art theft or whatever in in Paris. So it feels like I started out, my my first novel was something very serious, a woman war correspondent during the Vietnam War. 
Then I moved to something lighter, um, the flyers in 1929. And now I feel like I've just, it, it's giddy. I mean, it's just a really fun, nothing, you know, there's nothing serious about my about my mystery series. The, the characters are all just lots of fun. And, and there's a wacky actress, American actress, working in an English language production in Paris. It's like, I'm almost embarrassed to to say I've really gotten frivolous, but you know it still is. I, I'm I'm still doing research. It feels so unserious to me, whereas Flying Jenny is is. Uh, I feel like that is that's a good history lesson. Um, reading that book. While I think it's lots of fun, you can just learn out, learn an awful lot of history. It seems like it'd be a wonderful book for kids, teenagers. Any New Yorker who wants to know about this amazing thing that right. took place in 1929, and someone who lives in Greenwich Village who right. wants to get a glimpse at what right. their neighborhood looked like way back when. Right. No, I I did a tremendous... I've, I've got a bunch of Greenwich Village books. I took a course at the New School... Um, on Greenwich Village, poetry and music, the research and the history is just was, was so much fun. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. It's been swell talking to you. That's author Thiesa Tui. Her book, Flying Jenny, is available now. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Caroline Rotante and Fiona Shea. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.